Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 27 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Michael Baslington. Michael was recommended to us by Graham Phillips of episode 19. And it's very inspiring to be able to speak to another GP about low carb and keto. Yes, Jackie, it's really encouraging to see that there are medical health, allied health professionals out there that are willing to support a low carbohydrate functional lifestyle medicine approach. So let's hear a little bit more about Michael and who he is. Dr. Michael Baslinton is a UK-based family doctor. He completed his GP training in 2006. Dr. Michael has been practicing as a GP for the last 13 years. He saw in the surgery many diabetic patients, which was concerning. In 2017, he started the body mapping clinic. The aim of the clinic is to provide a service for individuals who want to apply science and technology to better understand and manage their health. Dr. Michael Baslington attended and completed the AFMCP UK training, Applying Functional Medicine in Clinical Practice, in London in 2018. He now divides his time between being a local GP and working privately in the body mapping clinic. Welcome, Dr. Michael, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you, Jackie. We always ask our guests, where in the world are you? I am in South Yorkshire, um, south of Doncaster, Bawtree. Great. In the UK? In the UK. Yes, in the UK. And um, you're, you're, not, you're from where, where I live, aren't you, originally? Yes, I'm an Essex boy, originally. Yeah, um, been I'm living a good old Essex girl. <laughs> living in Yorkshire longer than I li- lived in Essex, eh? but you can take the boy out of Essex. <laughs> but you can't take Essex out of the boy, as they say. Where in Essex? It was just north north of London, near Stansted Airport I grew up, in a little vill- village called Stebbing. So, Stebbing. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, and that's where, well, I was in Chelmsford for okay. last year. And um, so, yeah, so I suppose we've got a... Three of us have got the Essex connection, so that's really great. A common geography, yeah. (laughs) So why don't you start by leading us in by telling us how you got involved in low-carb keto? Yeah, no, I will, Jackie. um, So I'm a GP, qualified in 2006-07 and became a partner in 2007, I think. So I've been working in the same practice for 13 years. And I 
originally was quite interested. Obviously, when I started, the amount of diabetes in the practice wasn't at the sort of level it is now, but we still had a lot of sort of health-related issues. So we had a very successful um, weight loss program um, back in sort of 2010, which um, the patients loved and did really, really well on. And it was based around sort of sort of support, understanding about sort of exercise and steps and what sort, you know, sort of kind of understanding some part of what was in the food in terms of the sort of um, nutritional labeling. And But I think patients mainly did well because of the encouragement and support. And then funding for that really sort of dried up about in 2014-15. So we had this sort of spate where we really we were struggling to help our patients who wanted to lose weight and wanted to maintain health um, through lifestyle um, and diet, didn't really have the information, the support they needed. And it was a bit of a, and that was quite a frustrating time. But I sort of, that when you'd seen patients do really well um, over that period, it was, it was that in, the hope to find something to sort of replace that. Mm. And, I think I, in my own sort of, in my own sort of life, I was trying to sort of find ways to maintain my own health whilst doing quite a sedentary job and find ways to sort of balance the stress and um, time to keep myself healthy. And my brother, my brother lent me a book called Born to Run um, by Christopher McDougall, I think, Christopher yeah, Christopher, Christopher McDougall. So that would have been written. I don't know when that when he when that was released. Probably two thousand and five, six. I'd have to check. But so I read that book sort of around two thousand thirteen, fourteen, um, and it was a really it was just a sort of, and he basically challenged the sort of status quo on what what good running technique is, why why we run the way we do, and how the sort of the shoe industry have affected our sort of perception of. And footwear and what's good footwear, what's supportive footwear, do you need supportive footwear? And and at the time I was trying to sort of use running to maintain my own fitness and health, but I was getting a lot of foot problems, sort of foot pain and um, toe metatarsal pain. Um, so I transitioned to barefoot running, which was his, the whole, the principle of the book was saying actually, we, we were designed, nature designed us with a perfect set of running shoes, which is basically our feet. Um, and we, as, as, as the, you know, the, the, the shoe industry have kind of led us on a different direction and actually, and, and our feet have been forgotten really. So, and his, his argument was that we need to move back to, you know, if we, you know, if, particularly if you've got problems, I think if you've got foot pain and you're struggling, then it's worth trying a sort of, you know, barefoot running shoe style, which I did and never looked back really. And all the foot pain went um, and I still run occasionally. But he then wrote, he wrote a second book called Natural Born Heroes. And in that second book, and I read his second book of the basis of the first book, he, he talks about Tim Noakes and um, uh, Phil Maffetone, who's a, an American chiropractor I believe but sort of work with triathletes and long distance endurance athletes. Right. endurance athletes yeah so um and so that's the first sort of time I came across the kind of low carb movement really and I also whilst reading that book I had this kind of sort of epiphany where 
I, I sort of realized that my work in the NHS wasn't really the final chapter. You know, I, I didn't, I wanted to do something in addition to that. It, you know, what I was doing, I, was, I enjoyed and it was great, but then I, I think I saw an extra sort of avenue that I wanted to do with my career around sort of helping individuals sort of who are motivated to sort of optimize their health and well-being beyond what I can really do in general practice. So that sort of, so whilst reading that book, I really, I want, I sort of knew that I wanted to set up, set up a sort of a, a, a kind of company that actually focused on more, you know, actually focused solely on lifestyle and well-being and and diet and nutrition alongside the NHS work. So, and that was probably 2015. And one of the local physiotherapists wrote to us about some of the, you know, the work they were doing. Um, and I got chatting with them and talked about, you know, sort of setting up this company and they were very much looking at the low carb approach to sort of particularly for athletes um so and that was at the same time i was reading the book and they said oh have you heard of tim notes i said yes i have and they said oh have you heard of the real meal revolution um i said no and they said oh go and have a look at that and i was you know he said oh what about all the saturated fat and you know <laughs> as you do and they said oh you know have you heard of the sea malhotra and um so i looked him up and I didn't really have a personal issue with the saturated fat um, and sort of worry about fat and cholesterol, but I knew that certainly my colleagues might and patients might. And ha- ha- so I, I you know, my, my, we were brought up with real food at home, and we we ate butter. And so, so personally, I didn't have the issue. So, so actually, when when you start to read in sort of in, about Tim Noakes and his sort of you know his sort of scientific background and pedigree. You realise you're you've got you've got no worries really, and so that was just it. Sort of all things started to fall into place. So, well, I've kind of thought and believed this anyway, um, and now I've got you know someone else who's so, so it all sort of started to fit together in 2015-16. I did I actually did the Real Meal Revolution Banting coaching, sort of it was an eight week coaching course. Um, so I thought, well, I don't really know a huge amount of nutrition, and there's probably a lot they can teach me. We didn't really have a lot of nutritional input at med school, and all that sort of. Did you nap- have any? Uh, no, we did have some, maybe two lectures, I think, but it was all mainly wrong. I think there was a one biochemistry lecture, and he said, "Wow, it's, it doesn't really matter what you eat; it all just." <laughs> so that was sort of yeah. So no, very little, very little formal teaching on nutrition. I think on a biochemistry, on a sort of molecular level of how how the body works, I think actually it was quite good and. But these were these were sort of these weren't clinicians who were teaching us in our pre-med. They were sort of biochemists and physiologists. That was all very sound and, and very useful. And you realise that they, it was just the clinical application in life of what you should therefore do that was missing. So I did the Real Meal Revolution Banting coaching course, which was great um, and great fun, and and that really provide that was 2016. So I took, so I had, I finally had a lot of evidence and just sort of thoughts to take to my colleagues within the, within the practice about how I felt that really we needed to sort of introduce some more information to our patients about, um, how we need, you know, how to manage their diabetes. And to their credit, they, they, they kind of listened and they watched some of the videos, particularly one of the diabetic leads. And they were really enthused, and they—I think Gary Torb's one of his YouTube videos was key um, in terms of 
understanding the sort of biochemistry behind starch and sugars and the effect of insulin and essentially sort of viewing obesity as a sort of hormonal problem in response to insulin and sugar and starch and that so they took it all to get on board and then what started happening is patients started following it and then there we started seeing weight loss and reduction in blood pressure and reduction in HbA1c and diabetic control and that really once you once you've got that so you've then everyone's convinced because it's successful and the patients mm. are you know positive and rather than dreading you know rather than dreading your surgery where everyone is failing and you're just adding more medication to an ever ever increasing bag of medication you're actually starting to remove medication because people don't need it and that suddenly changes your working life around and you start looking forward to seeing people and how they've done and then you're you encourage them they're positive and so it it things began and that was quite an exciting time and so how how yeah. did you influence your patients with making the changes i think looking back i think you become evangelical about it and for some looking back i think probably too evangelical in some respects because you can't contain your ex well, I, I can't contain my excitement and some people <laughs> respond to that some people don't and i think i've learned with as the years have gone by that you, you, different approaches for different people but i think you enthuse the enthusiasts who are motivated and they they're just waiting i think recept they i think genuinely people want to do something and historically because we've told them the wrong thing, they've not been successful. So they appear unmotivated because but there's nothing worse than being unsuccessful for motivation. So if you tell people, give people the wrong advice and they don't do very well, then no one wins. Whereas if you start infusing that you might you know, and explaining why hmm. and they, they start being successful. I think the other thing that was useful at that time, David Unwin had started releasing some research. So I remember listening on the radio and he, I think the Public Health Collaboration UK had just released some data. So I thought, oh, I must find out who, who this guy is. And I, I almost managed to speak to him, but he was getting quite busy at this time. But we managed to find his sort of side of A4 on this is advice for patients. So I managed to persuade the partner, so that why can't we just take, and I said, and I, wrote, I emailed him, I said, would you mind if we sort of copied, if we copied and pasted basically <laughs> so, of course yes so having someone with a bit of data and doing some research the you know, partner was very comfortable with that so we so we had a sort of he had done some footwork for us if you like so we had information to share from our patients f share with our patients and which was quite well worded and had been shown to be successful at least in a sort of on a one-to-one -one basis and um, so yeah so that was i think having had so there's several things sort of came together. We'd lost this kind of the success of this previous course and we were, so there was a vacuum, if you like, for what do we do? What do we tell patients over and above what we're already doing, which doesn't seem to be working? Um, you'd had, you've got another GP who's shown success. So we had some pre-made information for patients and we had positive clinicians and we had patients who were being successful. So all of that sort of came, came together in sort of 2016, 17. Um, I think what's we we kind of plateaued at that point. We had some internal challenges within the practice, as you do. Um, some of the bureaucracies, some of the personalities didn't go quite so well, and we sort of plateaued for for a couple of years. And 
Um, that's been a bit frustrating, but I think that's part of life in general practice. It's not always plain sailing. Um, and you just have to focus on the positives and, and keep, keep the success story rolling as best as you can. Mm. And it's life. And I guess any business has that, have those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I mean, I'm now the, so I'm the longest standing GP there. So everyone who was there in 2007 when I joined has now left. That's just over 13 years. We've lost seven partners to retirement and to moving away. I think one moved away. So I think general practice, yeah. So when you're losing people with huge amounts of experience, um, you've got to sort of work hard to fill those shoes, which we've done, I think. And I think, yeah. And it's so, and the challenges sharpen you and help you focus and ask, make you ask what's really important and what, what are you trying to achieve? Hmm. Right. What have been some of the patient successes that you've seen? You've mentioned about, you know, reductions in blood pressures and HB1ACs, you know, what's perhaps the most inspiring case, patient case history? Yeah, so I had, I think, as one chap, this actually predates the low carb. And I think, you know, we, I, I think, is it, who says you can't outrun a bad diet? I see Maholtra. So, yeah, and I completely agree with that. But I think exercise is really, is, is still key for motivation and mood. And we had this, so this predates our sort of low carb and sort of real meal or low carb and real food sort of push and goes back to the chrysalis course we ran. We had one chap who he must have lost 50 kilos and he had a huge hernia that needed repairing and he couldn't have it repaired because he was too overweight. So he, so he went on this course and he walked, I think, five miles every day for three years. And they, and he did eat better. He did eat better and he lost all his weight, had his operation. And he, he's just, every time I see him, even now, sort of six years later in the corridor, he's, oh, thank you. You know, you changed my life. And it's like, <laughs> so you're the one who got out of bed every day at, at six and went for that five mile walk. But, and, and then we've, so since, Obviously, as we've evolved and, and our understandings improved, we've been able to, you know, I had to sit him down and say, look, you're, you've got to eat more food now. <laughs> you have to, you have to eat more eggs and more protein and more vegetables. Um, I'm not so worried about the biscuits, but you've got, you, and so he, to, to stabilize your weight at 70 kilos, cause you, you need to lose. And I think he, so, and he's stuck with us and we've stuck with him and he's, he's done really, really well. And he's had this successful hernia operation and he, he looks 20 years younger and he feels 20 years younger. And he's, so we've sort of bought him 20 years of good health, really, or he has, or the, or the, the combined effort has. So that was one really good example. Another one, a young chap who I think had his triglycerides were in the teens. So sort of, and he was referred to the familial. So he had, very, very poor cholesterol profile, lipid profile, referred him to the lipid clinic thinking he had familial um, hypercholesterolemia, which he didn't. And it turned out that he was having about six teaspoons of sugar in his tea. And he was having a cup of tea about 15 times a day. So, and it, and it was just realizing that and changing his diet his triglycerides came back down to normal so i think you know sort of and and he'd had he had lots of other metabolic issues around that and i think 
that would have been a complete mystery um, without the sort of understanding that actually if you overwhelm the liver with sugar and refined carbohydrates and starches, it, it's, it can't cope. And then that has an effect on your lipid profile. And I think prior to my sort of understand, you know, I've forgotten my pre-med biochemistry. <laughs> so from a sort of clinician with a, who, who likes the mechanics and understanding how the human body works, I, I personally feel when I look at these blood, blood results and blood, blood chemistry, I now understand them far better. So from a personal sort of job satisfaction point of view, a bit selfish, but I feel that I now know what's wrong with my patients and can explain to them why. And then when they see the results, then from the changes they make, um, that's exciting. So I think, so seeing lipid profiles, because people have inherited this kind of obsession with cholesterol. What's my cholesterol doc? And, and, and actually there's, so I, I tend to talk about whether it's a good profile or a bad profile or whether it, or what it says about your diet and how can we improve it? So how can we improve your HDLs and how can we reduce your triglycerides? Mm. Um, so we're seeing a lot of improvement in that. So, and alongside, along with that, we've seen reductions in people's fatty liver markers. So this condition, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a part of the meta- metabolic, um, syndrome where the liver gets starts to dis starts to not function correctly because it's overwhelmed with fatty deposits and um, we've seen lots of improvements in that improved liver function um, and blood pressure is coming down and needing less blood pressure medication um, mm. less swollen ankles people don't like their ankles swelling so so I, I think it's it's hard i mean it all blurs into one one really i mean other people have been successful what about for yourself? What have you noticed in your own health? Yeah, so good question. Um, lots of things. Really. I've always been hungry. I remember coming home from secondary school and just eating and eating. I was one of four kids, so I was the eldest. So you had to learn. You, you learned to eat quickly to get seconds. <laughs> so I, so I, I've got the jaw muscles. So sort of, you know, the, the the one who finished first got got to sort of have first dibs at seconds so I've always been hungry and I think at university my diet was probably the worst but being brought up by a dentist and my mother was a midwife trained her father was a GP so health was a kind of table table conversation really and particularly around nutrition from my dad's perspective he saw the sort of the damage of sugar on teeth mm. and dentition you know, and he, I, I remember sort of my, my mother sort of introducing the concept of bran and, you know, brown, brown sort of wholemeal foods in the sort of, I guess it would have been in the eighties. And, and my father said, well, fine, as long as we don't have to stop the butter and as long as we don't have to stop the cream and the, you know, the meat with the fat on it. And so we, so we ate a really sort of broad, healthy diet. I think growing up as kids, homegrown veg, meat, eggs, fish, and one, one sweet after Sunday lunch. and we weren't you know we weren't allowed to go to the shop before school to buy sweets we weren't given money and we were told you know because of the effect on teeth so so i was brought up with this acute awareness of sweet things were not allowed or they were rationed um (laughs) having said that my father kept bees so we had i remember every year in the summer we would when he was collecting all the honey there'd be he'd spin the honey out and 
the honey would be draining in the living room. So if you got up early enough, you could go down and you could gorge yourself on this, this honey without anyone knowing, um, and all the wax with honey in it. So, so it was a sort of kind of, it was a healthy relationship with food. But, you know, sweet things weren't necessarily bad. They were just not helpful for your teeth. Therefore, you limited them and you had them after you'd, after you'd eaten other foods. So it was a really, so I was very sort of eternally grateful to my parents for their sort of relationship with food and, and that it was actually good and it was for us and, and, and meant to make us healthy. But we just had to use a little bit of wisdom around that. Mm. So, and I think, so growing up, I think I was fairly, fairly well fed in a healthy way. University, I think you're trying to manage your own budget and there's more pizza and more beer. So that's probably my least healthy period, um, food wise. Having said, you know, and I was doing a lot of exercise. It was, so, yeah, so I think, and then coming into sort of junior doctor years where you're doing 70 hour weeks, 60 hour weeks, port, you know, doing night shifts. And so that, so that sort of period, probably from the age of about 1920 to sort of late 20s. Hmm. And I remember, you know, I got up to about 82, 80 kilos. So I was probably BMI of about 27, 28, which probably wasn't, you know, BMI is not a great marker, but it, I was definitely overweight, um, with more sort of probably not a great composition because I wasn't doing much exercise and I didn't feel great. And that was a sort of time where, so after the chrysalis course shut and I, that sort of period, 2015, 16, trying to sort of get my own weight down, I came across my, I think I did Michael Mosley's 5-2, so just reducing calorie intake. That helped a little bit. And I, I remember we went in 2014, we went, did a three week camping trip with the kids around the South Coast. And my wife was, she was, in some ways, she was more attuned to sort of what we were getting wrong. Her grandma was Austrian and she'd been brought up with, again, quite a positive food, sort of healthy food and vitamins and nutrition from her grandma. Um, and she felt we were, weren't eating right and she wanted to get it right for the kids. And I remember we, so we went on this three week trip round camping, which was great. I remember just being hungry all the time. And I think it was because I was eating sort of my four Weetabix, six week Weetabix before I went to bed. Plus <laughs> sort of, you know, a lot of carbohydrate just to sort of keep on top of this, you know, on, you know, forever hungry feeling whilst not really losing any weight so a little bit of her input plus michael mosley plus doing a bit of exercise i think i managed to lose about 10 kilos um and got down to 70 kilos which was great so and that was at the time and then that sort of dovetailed into when i was doing the real meal revolution and then that's when all the pieces started to drop together that actually i didn't and that's when i really had a period when i went completely keto for probably about i don't know six to 12 months Hmm. and my hunger went and I and I think that was the first time I ever sort of you know I'd wake up not feeling nauseous with hunger so that was a revolution I didn't have to feel hungry and and there was one I think we went out for a, a birthday brunch oh no probably and I remember getting about three quarters of the way through this full cooked breakfast without the hash browns and without the toast and having um having my coffee without milk, having having my um putting my butter in my coffee. <laughs> so, 
and I got three quarters of it through the meal, and I, and I couldn't eat anymore. Yeah. And I, said, and I said, <laughs> you know, my wife was in hysterics at this point, just, just sort of like, she said, are you actually full? Yeah, so I think sort of realizing that satiety comes with fat and protein um, and exercise, I think, for me personally, I think when I'm at the moment we're with lockdown, the tennis courts are sh- shut, so tennis is my sort of stress stress buster. So I think I think my appetite is driven by stress as well. But also when I when I get my fat and protein levels up then I feel full. Mm. So I think so personally it's enabled me to I think manage the combination of stress from work, life plus an appetite plus all the other things that make us eat the wrong thing. Yeah. So what I wanna ask you is you know you've had this significant I suppose informed you know lived experience and how this now you've used this into your practice and that's obviously given you I suppose that evangelical platform you too can feel not hungry you too can feel you know the vitality and have this you know second chance and is it would you say that's part of your motivation that your experience of living real food helps to inspire your patients yeah yeah i think absolutely i think it what's happened is that initial first from sort of 2017 for for the next 18 months with lots of success stories i think what you then start to see is people who've had a success story who haven't managed to continue it or have had struggles and it hasn't worked so well and suddenly so you're then thought, oh, okay, how do we, so then the next question is how do you help people to maintain behavior change? And that I think is a, is, is a harder question to answer. And I think that's where I'm at at the moment is how do we, how do we actually, once you've imparted the vision and someone's bought into it and how do you maintain that sort of momentum? And I think that is the on, that's where I'm at at the moment, trying to work out with patients how we do that. I think in our practice we have a in the NHS work I do, we have a usual doctor list, so we try and maintain continuity to encourage patients to see the same doctor, which means that actually within 18 months you've sort of been through your your particular group of patients, and so you can only you can only be evangelical so many times before they start getting. You know, you've got to find a different, a different approach, or actually, what they need is encouragement, and just that's not for them right now. They've got other, and and you actually sit and listen and realise that there's other stuff going off in their life that means that what you're trying to in- encourage them to do probably isn't right for now. And I think you know the question of does the relationship, doctor patient relationship, can it can it sort of hold the challenge that you want to give or do you need to work at that relationship and build trust? So I think it's, I've sort of, we're in phase two at the moment. So my, my biggest passion is to try and understand how to sort of, sort of trigger the self, the internal motivation for people. So I can, I can give the vision, but how do you, how do you encourage people to buy in and then have that in, internal motivation that makes them drive themselves? And um, so, one of the the other key sort of points within the practice that I think helped the nurses particularly was watching the Fixing Dad film that was aired on BBC Two a couple of years ago. 
by the by Anthony and Ian Whittington with their dad Jeff and how they sort of helped him pretty much reverse his diabetes. Um, so we, we watched that as a team, all the nurses and the doctors and that. And I think that gave us that sort of second win that we needed to try and um, sort of how do you sort of motivate people and sort of watching these brothers do that. And then I went on to do some filming with them with a guy called Rob. Um, and that was quite, that was a, a good, that was a great experience. It was just because he struggled with motivation, sort of kind of, he wanted to be motivated, but he kind of didn't quite know how to sort of, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for him. Hmm. I think the first when we first met, he said, "Don't talk about willpower," <laughs> which is right. You know, sometimes you know, I've been there, tried that, it hasn't worked, and and I need something else. But I think, luckily, with with keto, you don't need willpower as much, as much. So no, I, I always thought I had no willpower, but I discovered that you know, actually, it's not about willpower. Exactly, exactly, and it's because I think. The point is that the desire is there, isn't it? To actually, people do, people do want to change their lives, and that's what they really do. And it's actually the disappointments where they haven't been successful, despite huge willpower, that they feel not back. And I think with with Rob, you know, it was with it was encouraging him that he could he could do that, and he had he did have you know he had the motivation, which I think he kind of. He he definitely would. I think he'd say that he found that at some level. Mm. But then take your situation. You're not an unintelligent man. I mean, you're you're a GP, yes. so you've you know you're not unintelligent. You know you've you've got the world at your feet. You're young. You're healthy. But you were always hungry. Yeah. You know, it's no you. amount of food was ever going to fix that that problem of you know being unbearably hungry. So. This is the fact that you were, you know, you've got, you've got the information, you know your body, but there is this bi- biochemistry that was creating this perfect storm as it, as it was, you know, this six or seven Weetabix in the morning yeah. and toast or porridge and oatmeal yeah. that was creating this particular situation. So this is the thing that I'm saying that, you know, knowing what you know inspiring your patients to make positive changes because you know that it's in their best interest to have, you know, to fix their fatty livers, blood pressures, all those other things that come with um, metabolic syndrome. You know, it's not for the, as you said, it's not for the want of the willpower or the desire, but there's just all this imbalance in our food systems and some of the education um, literacies. But, you know, hunger is a huge driver. It, it, you're absolutely right, Louise. And it, it was, I think it was four Weetabix before bed and, and then maybe another, and then plus porridge in the morning with a banana. And then I had to take a milkshake <gasps> to have by 10 o'clock to stop myself feeling sick. And, <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, and, and without the sort of, you know, as a kid, we used to do lots of, you know, without the exercise. And I, I think I would, I would, I'd have been a diabetic by my mid 50s. I think, mm. I think, I don't know, but no, I, I, it's huge, isn't it? And I think one of the, one of the, one of the things is to actually help people to realize this, that actually, and this was the Gary Torbs sort of, his sort of hypothesis that really obesity is a hormonally driven disease and you can't beat hormones. The hormones will just push you, you know, it's, 
you can't beat hormones with willpower. So that, that level of hunger is, is, and if you add stress and challenging family circumstances, you know, it, it's enough to sort of, it's enough to just, to beat most people. And I think it, so what, it, what we, ha I think what is nice to do is to actually reassure people that they, they don't have to feel beaten like that. And actually they can, you know, by a few simple changes can actually start to beat you know, put, put the shoe on the other foot and actually start to win and get the health goals that they want. Um, and that's, that is exciting. I think more recently it's, we've lost momentum. I mean, COVID has been a real challenge. Um, although I think one of the positive spins or po po positive outcomes of that will be people's willingness to do sort of online group work. And as a practice, we did start some group project work. Um, a year ago again that stalled a little bit with all the work we've had to do with covid but i think when when that settles as it will i think we will be in a better position to sort of invite people to a sort of group zoom and actually have you know sort of group consultations online with patients which they'll be able to attend because where, whether they're just finishing work or at home or in the middle of the day i think that will be a way of sort of scaling up our sort of the sort of um education for people or not really education or sort of group support and sort of group solutions. Hmm. Do you have a patient participation group in, within your practice? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, they, yeah, we, they meet, I think once every two months. We were one of the first practices to have one. So they're, they're positive and they don't, I'm not sure whether they are part of, I don't know how many diabetics we've got in that group. That's what you almost really need is a, is someone who within the group who's, keen keen to actually sort of encourage that yeah you maybe. need to link in you, you need to link in with the phc ambassadors program with sam's um sam felton's ambassadors program so they're one of those advocates that comes to the to the groups to to really provide that sort of inspiration and the how to yeah so one of our nurses is is an ambassador um and she's on the ambassadors right. course at the moment and she's absolutely 100 percent excited and positive about it We've just lost another nurse to the community. She wants to go and do community diabetes. So again, you're, you're working with a sort of constantly evolving team. Um, so if you lose one member of staff, you've got to find another who's, and then you've got to train them up and, and, and explain the, so, but again, it, it's, it's, that's good. You just have to see, you know, it's great that one of our nurses who has huge sympathy for the low carb approach has gone into the community. So great. You know, it's, it's seeding. Um, the diabetic community as a whole. But no, so one of our nurses is part of that scheme and she's very keen to do those group consultations. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful that that will be, that is the solution. I think following a very positive 18 months, one of the other things is as an individual clinician, you start to get a bit burnt out, I think, by it's difficult to maintain the momentum for every patient. And you think there must be a sort of more efficient way of giving the same I mean, to give, you know, a comprehensive explanation of how to reduce carbs safely and go keto, if you like, or is, you can't do that in 10 minutes. So you end up overrunning and then it puts pressure on the rest of the surgery. And so, so I think there's a sort of, along with the enthusiasm, there is a risk of burnout um, for those, you know, if you're trying to sort of, if you're trying to sort of teach a, 
a low cut you know nutrition among alongside your sort of day-to-day work and i think where we are with that is i think we all as a practice we i think the group consultation is probably uh, an efficient way to sort of deliver the the information at scale yeah that would be really good mm, so i'm quite excited about that Mm. and then on a on a sort of personal level in my other you know in my sort of so so in my part-time portfolio sort of working life i hope to be working more with individuals um on a sort of private basis on a one-to-one basis um and doing going into a bit more depth and doing more testing um for those patients who are who want to sort of take things further but that's a really good i think that's quite insightful in your own practice in that sort of sense that you are looking at that how can i keep my momentum going by also evolving, you know, evolving privately, you know, in terms of my scope, you know, your scope that you can actually, knowing the limitations of the, the functional limitations of the NHS, but moving now into this lifestyle functional approach and having that scope and having that engagement and perhaps having a more tailored approach, that's got to be, you know, enriching for your own job satisfaction. That's a very smart move for your own career longevity. Yeah, well, I, I get bored, I'm afraid of sort of, <laughs> I just, and I have to do something different. And I think had I not, and it's, you're, de- you're dead right, they both, they both support each other. They're mu- mutually beneficial. So the fact that I went and did a, you know, an eight, 12 week real meal revolution coaching course that touched on nutrition, um, sort of definitely had huge benefits to the practice. And what I've learned in my sort of, you know, working with people, within my general practice, family medicine actually has huge benefits for sort of working with individuals who, who really want to sort of invest in their health and have want to invest time, money into their sort of longevity and, and into their health. So completely, they are very, very much mutually beneficial. Um, I just couldn't do either of them full time, I think, and they, they balance each other out nicely. And, and I think, unfortunately, the... I think where we are with, with sort of, con- with, with the NHS or with, I don't really want to use the word conventional medicine because everything I do is conventional. Um, but with what is seen as the standard sort of practice is really about pathology. Um, so you'll find that actually if you're, if you're a bit overweight and you've got vague symptoms, then when you want to improve your health, so say, 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 so you're someone who is, you're not necessarily ill, but you're no, you know you're not particularly healthy and you're not quite sure how to get from not quite ill to being more healthy and you want some support and help and guidance and you go to your, your GP, you, well, the NHS isn't really there to, to do that. Although there are, I think there is, there are people who want to get the NHS to a point where it can do that and there are it is trying there's the you know, sort of over 65 health check so it is trying at some level to do that but it's more about is there a pathology you know is there an illness there that needs treating so once you so pre-diabetes diabetes you know um cancers heart disease or all, all, once you've got those conditions then there's actually pathways and, and things that can be done and you'll be given medication and treatment. So, so all the testing within, in the NHS is really geared around, or within medicine is geared around, is there a pathology here? You know, is there, 
Is there hypothyroidism that needs medication? Is there diabetes that needs medication? Is there high blood pressure that needs medication? And actually having, having sort of testing to sort of diagnose disease rather than testing and that actually assesses level, a level of health. And I think that's what really with, within the NHS, I don't think it's ever going to be, it's ever going to change. So I think the NHS is going to probably, because of resources, is going to focus more and more on acute illness and cancer and actually defined cardiovascular disease. So someone who's got angina or high blood pressure and is on medication. And actually that will consume all of the NHS resources going forward. And I just you, think, yeah. You'd think that they would take a step back and look and think if we can stop people getting to this point, then we'd have a better model to work with, a more more fundable model to work with. Absolutely, Jackie. And I and I don't and this is my I think probably this is the frustration has pushed me into a portfolio career where I can do that for people who want that. Mm-hmm. Um and I think this is where Jackie calls it the sick care. So it's that sort of, you know, where the treatable or the treatment sort of process at the end is the downstream sort of thing. And whereas, you know, you're wanting to invest or to focus or to practice in the upstream, um, you know, to use that public health metaphor. So where we're, we're preventing, where we're promoting, we're educating so we don't actually get, get sick. You know, it's about a functional wellness as opposed to the the, the downstream, which is that functional sickness um, sort of treatment. And I can see how frustrating that is because here's a lifestyle intervention. You live it, you breathe it, you know, you're promoting it. And it's not necessarily the panacea for everything, for every malady, but, you know, there's most things that it can treat. And we have a story um well, Facebook will tell you a story about um, about you know people's recoveries from unwellness to recovering to their journeys to health. But yeah, it must be extremely frustrating for you when you can sort of see the system is designed to to treat downstream as opposed to investing in the upstream prevention. Yeah, no, it is, and I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why why it's, it, we struggle to do that so much. I think it's resource. I think it's hugely intensive in time and actually requires people to be motivated to do that. I think, I think we, I mean, we use with all our diabetics when they come for their annual check, we use a questionnaire to assign a sort of motivation level to those patients. And then we actually focus our sort of interventions and our sort of support around the level of motivation that they come out at so i think we are trying to you know the nhs is trying to do that i just i just know that in my career that if i wait until it's it does it at a level that i'm satisfied at i will be dead (laughs) and i'm just impatient and i want and i want to sort of see i enjoy now i went in i went into the job to fix things fix people you know i started actually had a dabble with engineering undergraduate engineering course before I switched to medicine so I think in my sort of in my psyche my my makeup is that I'm an engineer and I thought that I was just transferring to human engineering and I suddenly realized that actually medicine is not human engineering it's it's far more diverse it's more of an art form it's it's more of a sort of acquisition of knowledge it's I mean 
it's far broader than that. And I think what I felt it was missing was a sort of root cause, root understanding of why people get sick before they get sick. And functional medicine, which is what the sort of the, the private work I do and the sort of the work I do outside of the NHS, really tries to look into that. And I, I can understand why medicine has gone in in the sort of more more binary approach because it it yields more simple results. So if you take people just with blood pressure and you do you know intervent you know very focused interventions, you can actually demonstrate cause and effect and produce evidence of benefit of medication far more convincingly. Um, if you take someone with, you know, who's on 20 repeat medications and has got six chronic diseases, it's very difficult to know what on earth is going on from a sort of research point of view. So, so I think conventional medicine or standard medicine tends to isolate things. So, um, you don't become a patient or an individual with multiple problems. You become, today, you are the patient who's recovering from breast cancer. And I don't want to talk about your diabetes and I don't want to talk about your obesity and I don't want to talk about your thyroid problem. I just want to tell you that you can, you know, that now is the time to stop this medication for your breast cancer that we cured five years ago. The person sitting there is thinking, well, what about all my other problems? So we've, 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 so I think the system of medicine has become very siloed and that doesn't, I doesn't lend itself, I think, very well to creating a sort of preventative preventative system Mother. or who mm. is going to be your preventative champions probably primary care um but then we are managed we are you know the way we are sort of managed and and the bureaucracy that kind of drives us again is we have we get incentivized for managing blood pressure so so we we if we don't score certain points on blood pressure for our patients, we don't attract funding, therefore we lose funding. And so again, because academics who tend to go, who tend to sort of, people who, you know, become academics who, who think of policy tend to be again, come from the more secondary care focused and in, you know, siloed medicine. Um, so I think from a, from my point of view as a primary care physician and as a, as an engineer at heart, I, I was frustrated. I'm frustrated at many levels. And I think for me, functional medicine brings us back to where I thought medicine started, which was looking at, you know, one physician looking after one individual and taking the entirety of their, their story and their biology and their sort of social situation and spiritual situation all into account. And trying to sort of build back up from basics to understand why they feel ill or what they need to do in their individual circumstances not to get ill. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're taking that engineering approach to, to engineer, but you're taking the holistic, you know, the, the holism, as you said about the, yeah. about the end of, you know, the individual and you're, and you're trying to create a more encompassing, uh, root cause engineer you know, health solutions for them. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not we're not biological machines. We're biological systems, so we're actually far more complicated than machines. And systems, so a systems approach to underst understanding how we function is probably is more beneficial than otherwise. You end up going down the sort of the sort of siloed route. You you want to just focus mm -hmm. on the the liver or the yeah. or the so maybe 
you could explain a little bit about functional for our listeners a bit about functional medicine and how that works and how you use it in your body mapping clinic yeah so i set up uh, something called a body mapping clinic um and about three four years ago and i've started retraining or sort of additional training in functional medicine and i'm not so functional medicine that is i mean you could call it root cause medicine i mean some i think it's it's aligned to sort of lifestyle medicine um but it's actually looking at the sort of summation of cause and effect if you like so looking at root cause what what causes symptoms in in perhaps it's in standard in a more sort of standard approach you might look at say reflux you know if someone's got indigestion symptoms then the approach would be to reduce the acid and prescribe a an anti-acid tablet and to re- and you solve the problem so you take one symptom and you apply one one solution to that symptom to try and mm. get rid of it whereas functional medicine might say well what other symptoms alongside the reflux are you experience what other you know maybe it's fatigue um maybe there's obesity there maybe there's some pre-diabetes and then you you try and say you try and say well is there are there several is there sort of one root cause that is contributing to all these symptoms let's look at you know and it may be as we've talked earlier you know misunderstanding of what a healthy diet looks like which is contributing to the weight gain which is essentially causing the reflux so you're saying let's 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 actually address the let's address the um the diet and you may find alongside that there's there's perhaps a history of lots of antibiotics as a child um for recurrent ear infections and so you as you you take that history you think well maybe the gut microbiome um has a role to play here because lots of antibiotics and perhaps you know you brought up in a household that was very fearful of dirt and microbes and so everything was absolutely you know everything was bleached and lived in a very sterile environment so you start thinking well maybe there's maybe there's an issue with the gut and then you you ask questions well yes there is you know there's actually some gut symptoms there there's a bit of diarrhea there's bloating and so you start so at that point you, you you've actually moved from a symptom of reflux to a whole picture of of how that person is if you like imbalanced and then you start applying so you then might ask well is this affecting their nutritional status is this affecting um so you might do some blood tests to actually look at nutrition nutritional status you might do a a stool sample to actually look at the how the gut microbiome is you know, is it diverse is it represent does it look like a healthy gut flora and with that with that evidence you then create a bespoke plan for that patient and based on site you know, so you'd say this is why we're doing it it's, it's not it's not it's not a it, it it the plan is based in science so we might say actually you know you need to diversify your your gut microbiome and this is where i think it it goes beyond a sort of ketogenic you know a keto diet or a low carb high fat diet you might actually say to that person look you don't need to have a you, you can you can eat carbohydrates but they need to you know you're not massively overweight and actually i think for your gut you need to be eating some fruit and some vegetables and some starchy vegetables and some fruit and berries which have a little bit more sugar in them 
than if you're on a keto diet but actually for your gut microbiome that might be that might increase diversity and that might make you feel better have less reflux hmm. so it's it's a root cause it's trying to bring together explain lots of different symptoms with several or one root cause or you know a key root cause um, and in addressing a more fundamental problem you start to solve three problems four problems so it's like killing killing two birds with one stone yeah right well, it sounds more more up your alley in terms of the the problem solving and the the engineering and the and the root cause analysis. So there must be, you know, in, increasing your um, your job satisfaction hugely. And I think it, it also it reduces the sense of being overwhelmed by the, the patients. Often feel overwhelmed by symptomology. You know, where do I start, doctor? And it's because they've got lots of symptoms that they think are important. And if you, and I think in a more and more people say, well, GPs haven't got time. We're only allowed to talk about one problem. Whereas actually people need to talk about all their problems to find maybe one or two root causes. So I think if you can say to someone, if you can allow someone to talk about all their problems and then you can present to them a, a, a hypothesis, if you like, that there's only one or two root causes. And if they actually work at those and they can solve the vast majority of their problems, suddenly they feel empowered and not overwhelmed and they feel it's possible and they feel that actually that's doable rather yeah, than hope. yeah rather than just being overwhelmed by by the sort of all their symptomology yeah i think hope is very important isn't it to and to feel in control that you have some control over it yeah otherwise as you say you know you can have all the willpower in the world but if you just feel it's not possible um and feel overwhelmed and you don't know actually where to start and you can't have you know you've got brain fog it's just depressing and then you get depressed and then you you know you end up with clinical depression and then that's you know and so it goes on and, and it's yeah and i and i want i don't really want to be i don't just want to i don't mind being the occasional sticking plaster because that's sometimes what people need they just need something for this one problem and plea and fine but actually, I want to be more than a sticking plaster. I, I want to be, I want to be more permanent than that in people's in people's kind of you know, pathways to health. I, I just want I want to be more significant. So, and because it's more, as you said, Louise, it, it's yeah, it, it's more rewarding, and I need that in my in my sort of professional life, really. Yeah, it's really about a partnership, though, isn't it? Like you, you're on this journey, you know, with your with your patient or your client, whatever you want to. This person, they've come to you seeking help. You know, it's not it's not about you know fix me. And I think that so often patients do come to doctors to go fix me, but it's it's well, let's just tease this out a bit more. Let me, you know, it's a bit like um the start of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Let's go on a journey together. Yeah. <laughs> so um. You know, um, not that I hope that you don't wear um, your cross-dressing transvestite or anything <laughs> in your surgery. But if you are, we embrace diversity. But um, I'm think, sure that's... I think I wore a wig one. <laughs> <laughs> that one time. That one, one time. time at university. I wore the it was university. a male wig. About <laughs> so, as far as I in went. Keeping. In keeping. In keeping. In keeping, yeah. So, but it no, is it's, the, it's it's that partnership. So you're you're on a journey. It's a partnership. It's facilitating. It's as you said. It's empowering, uplifting, and inspiring, in terms of you know, often reclaiming a health. Yeah, and I think you know with, within 
sometimes people literally do just want a sticking plaster and they don't want to address other stuff. And that, you know, that's, I think we have, you know, as you say, Jackie, with a sickness service, that is what people have kind of been led to believe what it's for. And, and I, I don't know whether it's certainly not the majority, but there is a minority who just want that. And hmm. I, it's, that's hard. I couldn't do that all the time. So finding, finding people who are enthused about their own health and have a, and are incredibly knowledgeable about their own health. And actually I learn, it, I, I certainly learn things from them. Um, they'll share, people will share articles and what do you think about this? And I'll read it and think, oh, that's very, you know, it's great. That's interesting. And then I bring in, so I've, I've always felt that patients are here to teach, you know, individuals are here to teach me and their, their stories sort of actually inform me. Um, and so it is, it is very much a journey and it's quite a privilege and it's quite exciting to be, to see, you know, people, to watch people sort of, invest in their own health and I find that uplifting and encouraging and if I can just be a sort of a co-worker with them and bring in bring in my sort of wealth of experience of other people's journeys and stories and say well actually I remember a patient you know that tried this why didn't you try that and that helped work for them so a lot of what we do is you know is recognizing patterns and and, and helping repeat patterns at work yeah. So yeah, no, very much. It's it's, and that's. I think that is the excitement and thrill of actually working with motivated in, individuals who are willing to invest in their health and and put time to it. And yeah. And we only have to remind ourselves of David Unwin's, you know, story. And it was one of his patients who basically ignored his advice and yes. you know said, um, you know, I went, you know, I ignored your advice, doctor, and I did this, and that's how I lost all my weight and you know improved my diabetes so um yeah yeah and, and, and we had the same time sorry go on sorry jackie go on i was, I was just, just gonna say I we had, had a... this <laughs> you go okay i had a patient about that the same time who as we were transitioning to sort of encouraging lower carb diets and who was on insulin he came to me and said well actually doctor you're gonna really tell me off but I've almost stopped my insulin because I don't need it and I said oh tell me how you've done it and he said well it's, I've been doing this and I said brilliant that's what we've been encouraging people to do and you've done it all by yourself and no I'm not going to tell you off I'm going to support you and encourage you and well done but yes no I do I'm aware of David Unwin's story um where it was a patient and again he obviously he, you know he listened to that patient and good for him yeah we need more doctors like that and more doctors like you thank you there are and there I are think... lots of us out there and I think yeah, it, we just need to tap into them, and yeah. and for someone like me in my, I don't know, in my practice because I hardly go, but I I did when I did go once I said, it, do you have a doctor that's okay with low carb? And they they don't, so it's really hard to find help when you when you're in a different place to many of the other people. So it would be great to well, I found you now, so that's great. Brilliant. No, I'm happy to be found. But equally, it is it is hard. Obviously, you know, I'm not an unintelligent person and I have been known to go to my GP with the articles highlighted and tabbed, tabulated, you know, that GPs obviously, as you know, um, you know, busy people. And this one particular GP um, practice surgery 
um, one GP in his room, he has the, the cup, like his coffee cup, that has, don't confuse my medical degree with your Google search. So I take that in two ways. You know, you're either going to be receptive to what I've got to say, either through my lived experience, because I'm, I'm the master or the mistress of my own body. You know, here's some literature. This is a search that I've done, not on Google, but Google Scholar or PubMed. You know, I, that, that cup really upset me because it's like, that's a sign or a symbol that you're not willing to listen. So it does go both ways. I do see that, you know, you need to be prepared to listen, but obviously there's functional limitations to your time and your bandwidth. But, you know, discounting me up front that you're not going to listen to me because I've spent some time investing in my own health journey and these are the possible solutions. What's your opinion on this? And that's the partnership exchange, the transaction that we need to be working on. Yeah, no, I think I think it's I think you're right. I mean, that sometimes is an attitude that patients come up against. I mean, I, I would say personally, my one of my flaws, if you like, is I've got a really bad memory. Um, so when I arrived at medical school, so my I originally started life doing maths and physics, and was really a, a sort of applied mathematician doing engineering. And I remember with with your A level physics and maths, they gave you a formula sheet. So you could, you, before you went into the exam, you didn't have to remember the formulas. You just had to know how to use them and understand how they worked. And with with physics and maths is you would learn your, you'd understand your 20 formulas, but then there was an exponential number of problems that they could present to you in the exam as to, and you'd have to use the formulas to solve the problems, but you didn't have to remember the formulas. And then I arrived at medical school and realized this was just a memory game and I was just like it, it was hard work because I just don't have that memory um and my brain works it creates patterns and associations and so when when a patient comes in and they've done a google search and they say well doctor you know I, I found this out and I'm like you know because I have such a poor memory I'm, I'm like well I better check because they might be right so I think, so, so, so in some ways that weakness has become a kind of vulnerability and a, an openness to actually being, you know, having to check and just make sure that, because, and, and often, you know, I, I, I don't know everything on Google. I mean, and the, and I think what, what I'm, what I'm saying is some, some people have huge, you know, I went to medical school with people with phenomenal memories and just staggering what they could remember, you know, and repeat and, and kind of, you know, and understand. And I think, I guess if you're that person, then maybe you're going to be less receptive to someone to, you know, and, and you realize that you forget that actually what you've remembered from medical school, actually within five years, half of it's changed anyway. Hmm. So, you know, the exponential growth of knowledge. So I am quite happy for people to do Google searches. And as long as long as they're happy to for me to sort of look at it and say, well, actually, this is why this is you're right this is important but actually not the way you think it's important because of this reason and look here and then look and then so rather than just so rather than shutting people down just actually saying no well done you know well done for looking you know good for you, good for you for being interested in your own health enough to do a google search but let yeah, let's focus on a few points so i don't know how we how we change that i think yeah 
I think that's that's people. I guess find you know try and find mm. a clinician who is open. Um, also, I guess perhaps you sometimes people you know we have bad days sometimes we have stressful days. Sure. You know, and it maybe it was it was good. It, it was good because I did train my GP before, well you know, like I did, I, I trained her. Um, so I got, we got to a point where she'd go, tell me what you found and give yeah. me the cliff note version. Yes. And then she'd go, yes, no, yes, maybe let's try this. Perfect. So that was the thing. It was like, yes, I feel heard now. So I think that was the, the relationship was building both ways that I wasn't coming at it aggressively or you know this sort of stuff but I needed to feel empowered that I knew a little bit more about what I think I was having or what my options were and I think that's part of it is that partnership in coming up with a solution based on what I think because that's important for me is to know the context and a bit root, root causal you know in that way if I have a context and an explanation then I can move forward with the solution. Mm. Yeah. So I guess so, each, yes, yeah, so know how to, you know, find, forge your relationship, find out how your, your GP works best and how best to use their mm, time. Mm, yeah. So, Michael, um, what does your, your daily food look like? I mean, you've mentioned that you're, you've been on this health journey now for a couple of years. How has that evolved to your daily real food approach? Yeah, so my daily routine at the moment is, I think it's probably, I'm happier with it now than I've ever been, um, well supported by my, my wife, Rowena. Um, so I, the biggest challenge really for me is my sort of portfolio kind of working patterns. So my time in the practice is three days a week plus a bit of urgent care work, which is in the hospital or in a different location. So I work across three or four different locations, including home. So sort of managing the food, you know, to doing probably about 60 hours a week. So managing the food has always been a challenge. So my current, what I currently do is take a flask full of a stew of some description, nantagine or beef stew, which my wife kindly prepares for me. I do some of the, we kind of share the cooking. So we, we both cook. Um, she tends to make batch, batch loads of stew or sort of meat based, um, casseroles, which I then, which we then freeze. And then I take in a, heat up in the morning and take i've also been doing a, a sort of full fat yogurt with nuts and um sort of cinnamon with some seeds and a few berries and occasionally a little bit of homemade apple stew which is not really keto is it but it tastes very good it's from the garden it's good for my gut microbiome so um so i have that about 10 o'clock in the morning um with a coffee which I have milk in my coffee. So I'm probably having, a, I, I should think probably between 100 grams, maybe 150 grams of carbs a day, um, which probably compares to, I don't know, 300, 400 in the past. Mm. Um, so it's significantly lower. And I tend to, I tend to do sort of time restricted eating. So I don't really feel hungry till about 10. So I don't eat till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I probably get all my eating done by about six o'clock at the latest, hope maybe about five. So I have my so my eating window is about six to seven hours, and I try not to snack in the evening. Um, and provided I have a good meal, a good sort of stew at five, I don't. And that that seems to be sort of helping, you know, good concentration, sleep well, um, don't feel too hungry, and I'm playing tennis probably about three four times a week before they shut the courts um, to protect everyone. 
which I guess, you know, I accept. Um, so that balance of doing a bit of exercise and eating that way is helping sort of maintain, t- maintain my weight. Um, but I don't <laughs> tend to count my calories. I maybe, maybe do a sort of macro, count my macros maybe once a month for a day or two just to see, just to remind me what, how much, how many, how many carbs are in milk. So when you add milk to your coffee, I mean, it, but I quite enjoy milk in my coffee, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's kind of working for my sort of, I think the, the key, the thing that we realized we've got two kids in their teens. Um, so trying to sort of manage food for them and for me and my wife was a real challenge. And I would come home at different times, you know, so I would say I'd be home by six and I wouldn't get home till nine. And then it, it, it's just so sort of managing a stress, you know, busy, busy household. And we've got two kids, I don't, you know, for people with more kids, it's even more challenging. So by taking my eating out of the family home, during the week and just I just take all the food with me so it doesn't so I will eat at work at five and by d- doing batch cooking which we both help each other do, to do that's kind of solved that problem hmm. mainly yeah teenagers are terrible you know yeah especially having teenage boys and with a disposable income and two of them are working at Burger King yeah it, it's it's a challenge yeah. trying to to get them focused on, Food. on, you know, making making healthier choices. My daughter's, I mean, she's fifteen and she's got a real sweet tooth, and she know, you know, we don't make too much. We don't. No, we're just glad. Don't make she, too much of a fuss. No, mm. we just think it's important she enjoys food at this age, and we offer. Yeah, I think I think we get the balance about right, and you mm. know, we don't. Yeah, we just, you know, she's 15 and she'll have to work it for out, out for herself some days. And so, and we, we give them, we intentionally give them more, more sort of carbohydrates, real food carbohydrates. So rice particularly, because, you know, they're more active than we are. Um, we definitely don't restrict that. Um, and they enjoy food. So I think that's, you know, a bit like in my childhood, I had a really healthy relationship with food. Um, food generally good. Just um, but reduce the process. Speaking. Stuff. Speaking of your father, do you think that he was influenced by Western A. Price, you know, the dentist that studied the um, the indigenous tribes? It sounded I'd like have, he had a – you'd have to ask him. Yeah, I'd have to ask him. I mean, he, he, he was all about basic dentistry, you know, so he – you know, hmm. his thing was, you know, teaching people good diet and good hygiene, you know, sort of basic care. So he did all his own sort of scale and polishing and kind of all his own sort of – dental hygiene work he, he never had a hygienist um because he felt he you know he liked to sort of talk people through that as he did it and so he was definitely mm. a preventionist definitely mm. yeah Interesting. I, was, I was wondering that about western apis when you mentioned right, earlier he, about the mm. sugar but he was he was mm. he's and he you know he's i mean he's 72 now i mean he's fit the fiddle not on any medication you know, he manages an, eight, an acre and a half of garden, does all his own tree work, chainsaw, ladders, ropes, you know, and, he, and he's a busy man. And he, he's also, he, he was ordained, so he was a, a a minister, still is. So he was a very, so he had a faith, he has a faith, we have a faith. He, he, you know, he's a spiritual man, he's a kind of, he's, he's very broad in his approach to life. So he, you know, he's a sort of gardener, you know, he keep you know, keep bees, chickens. So, so has a very sort of broad approach to kind of what it is to live a good life. 
Um, and it's certainly not about sort of um, limits, limiting mm. things. It's about enjoying the good stuff um, and taking care of things. So, I, you know, that was a really, mm. really healthy childhood and, you know, have a, mm. you know, have to speak to him once a week and we natter about stuff. Great. So I'm blessed, you know, blessed to have that and, you know, I want to do the same for my kids and, mm. yeah. Well, Michael, I just had, a, I just had another question. So, when, at the time of recording, which is now November, mm. I think, and bearing in mind that this is not coming out for a few months, but I'm really interested. You said you had, when off, offline, you said you had COVID. Yes. And I'm curious to know if you've had any long-term effects of that. Um, no. I mean, I lost my sense of smell for about a month, maybe, and taste. But I, I um, didn't have a very good sense of smell or taste anyway, so it wasn't too much of a a, a loss. And my wife also, I gave her COVID, and she had it a week later. She has really struggled with loss of smell and taste. But it's like this is now probably so what, it was in April, so we're where are we now? We're nearly seven, seven. eight months, eight months on, aren't we? So it's almost. I think she probably says eighty, ninety percent back to normal. But no, personally, in terms of fatigue, I think I probably had a bit more brain fog for a couple of months afterwards, but I think it was difficult to know whether that was just working through those early months within the practice of trying to work out how to sort of best serve patients and look after people whilst we were adjusting to the rules and guidelines. And so it was a pretty challenging time. We also sadly lost my father-in-law to a, a combination of things. Um, so there was, you know, quite a lot of stress for ourselves and the family, a lot of grief. But no, I mean, I feel, I think, and I, and the symptoms I had at the time were very, very mild. You know, I didn't even have a fever. I just had a, a blip in my morning temperature. But I was taking vitamin D, zinc, magnesium, lots of, uh, taking my normal routine of supplements and, and I'm metabolically quite fit and healthy. So I think I probably, and I'm not mm-hmm. it. And I'm, so I'm not in the category who should really get it badly. And I didn't. So, and I think, I think mm-hmm. I put that down to a, you know, a good immune system because of what I know about my functional medicine and my lifestyle. You know, I practice what I preach and yeah, I look after myself and, and, and try and you know, make sure that my immune is, my immune system is up and running. So yeah. yeah. Good, good to know. Good yeah, to know. it's, it's good. And I, and I just, and that's, you know, the current, we've got a sort of a pandemic of an infectious disease hitting a, an epidemic of metabolic disease. And when the two come together, mm. it's a disaster. And I just, yeah, and that's what's happened, isn't it? We've, you know, COVID is, a virus has come in touch with, you know, a group of, you know, a, a Western population full of poor health. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And I think that's important to recognize and acknowledge that it's that combination of the two things coming together rather than it just being the virus. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely, Jackie. It's it's um, susceptibility. We don't talk about we talk about infectivity, but we don't talk about susceptibility, Susceptibility. and that's been forgotten. You know, modern medicine has forgotten why are we susceptible and who is susceptible and what can we do about it. We're just totally focused on you know the the transmission and 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 treatment. You know, wait till you've got it. We know how to treat it. It's like, well, yeah, 
I could go on, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's right. not. That's, that's, yeah, hopefully by the time this airs, we'll it'll all be thing in the past. Yeah, hopefully, mm. hopefully. Well, I don't think it's going away. It's just how we're going to manage it. It's so. not, and I think you know the thing is, you know, I work in urgent care, so you know, before this, I would see you know twenty people in a day, all coughing, sneezing, high fevers, you know, with flu, you know, full of viral, you know, and I wouldn't get ill. Mm. You know, and I haven't had a day off work since 2007 because, and that was a hip problem I had. So I think, you know, don't, don't underestimate a healthy immune system for life. I mean, it's, it's huge. And, and I think, yeah, it can be yeah. done. It mm. can be done. And it, and it's not difficult. It, it just needs some knowledge and focus and, yeah. Yeah. A willingness mm. to take part. So how can people get in contact with you? How can they find out more about your body mapping clinic if they want to have a consultation with you? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, we um, www.bodymappingclinic.com and you can book an online consultation there. Um, my main, the main work I'm doing at the moment is blood testing. So we do a 39 markers for health, which is a basic blood test. Um, we do some artificial intelligence analysis or machine learning analysis on it with work with a, a group called Nourish, Balance, Thrive in America, Christopher Kelly. And mm. has a podcast, lots of information there about that product. It's £129 mm. and you get your blood tests and your analysis. You have to pay for the blood draw on top of that, which depending where you are, where you live in the UK. And I think it's either £30 to go to a clinic or £60 to have it done at home. I don't have any, I can't, at the moment I've got no blood testing in Southern Ireland, in Republic of Ireland, but I can do Northern Ireland. Um, so anyone in the UK, hopefully they, maybe by the time this airs in January time, um, we'll have phlebotomy blood draws in Ireland as well. So it's hope, mm. plan is for it to be UK wide, early 2021, um, UK and Republic of Ireland wide. There's other blood testing that people can do, but the basic £129 is the kind of place where I encourage most people to start it gives us a good sort of kind of overview and with the blood smart calculator gives some really helpful sort of insights into um, what's going on for people and it can guide further testing and then people can either consult with me afterwards or um, they can consult with me before if they want to know what extra blood testing they can do it's really up to them and then we're hoping to open actually a physical clinic I guess probably late 2021 probably more likely realistically 2022 in south yorkshire where we've got a building which we're renovating so that's quite exciting so really it's the clinic is just in its infancy at the moment um, but i do have capacity for new clients at the moment which is great so yeah so that's just go along to the web website and it's all there www.bodymappingclinic.com great and are you on social media at all yes i am so i've got a Twitter account is at Dr. Baslinton, um, an Instagram account which is Body Mapping. I think I have a Facebook page, but that is not updated regularly. So it's mainly the Instagram account and um, Twitter. Great. We'll have all that in the show notes. We'd like to wrap up the podcast with your top three tips. My top three tips. Well, one of the body mapping sort of, sort of, ethos is is measure adapt improve so i guess i could put my top tips underneath that so measurement is key for sort of behavior change it's a sort of 101 
I think of behavior change. You don't measure stuff. You won't, you won't, you won't make the changes necessary. Um, which is the adapt process. So once you've measured stuff, um, you can, you know how to adapt and improve. Perhaps that's one tip. Um, so measure, adapt, improve. Think of that as, as how to move forward. Make, post, you know, make personal measurements and then try and see how you can a, adapt your lifestyle to improve. Um, second tip, time restricted eating, I think is, and fasting is absolutely key for everyone, whatever your diet, whatever you eat, because it's free because you're eating less. It's more efficient because you can reduce, you know, when you're not eating and preparing food, you can do other things. So actually, you know, actually having a, you know, fasting and time restricted eating, you don't know much about it, research it, find out about it and introduce it in a way that fits into your, um, into your diet and lifestyle. Um, tip number three, sleep. I think, you know, get, get enough sleep. Mm. And, um, if you want to measure your sleep, get an aura ring. <laughs> I think they're amazing. I'm, a, you know, I'm a data, data, data junkie. So that comes back to tip number one, measure, because <laughs> then you can adapt how you sleep. So is that more than one tip? <laughs> that's great. Three. Yeah, three. Three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. More than three. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Get enough yes, um, Get to bed on time and speaking. Speaking of aura rings, my, my husband's forward me kindly a recent Black Friday sale um email from Aura saying that they've got a hundred dollars off and it's just like, is that a suggestion for Christmas? Are you wanting a new one? <laughs> so um yeah. He yeah, he's the same. He's an engineer. He loves loves the data and collects all, all manner of data and has loads of spreadsheets as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and that's essentially what the Body Mapping Clinic is aiming to do. It is to help people, teach people how to measure and to go through that process themselves so, so they won't need me eventually. So I'll just, I'll just have, new, have to have new clients. But I use a, um, an online, something called Heads Up Health, which is a new startup in the US and they <laughs> great data collection collation and aura ring connects with that and so it's full of measurement and you know once you've got once you've got all the measurements you can start to sort of see the pathway and see how to sort of you know what needs changing what needs what needs improving and adapting and yeah it certainly we'll have to come back and talk more about that um in the future but yeah that certainly sort of excites me and and when i see people you know living lives that they enjoy more and more Hmm. because of that that's what i do Mm, that's what i enjoy but we certainly really appreciated your time today. And yes, we most, you know, generously will look forward to interviewing you again and hearing more about the body mapping clinic in a couple of months time. Hopefully we'll be able to schedule that in. Um, but thank you for your time today, Dr. Michael. It's been, been an absolute pleasure. It's been fabulous to have you on the podcast and um, we wish you, you know, as this has been recorded, um, a Merry Christmas and happy holidays um, and a great new year. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Jackie. Fabulous. Thank thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. Well, Dr. Michael is another inspiring medical professional, Jackie, that has had his own lived experience of using low carb keto to improve his, his health, which is Really great to, to hear, you know, that impactful and insightful reflection of him and how 
that's made a difference in how he's now using that in his in his practice. Mm. And I think he's very lucky that, you know, the other doctors and nurses in his practice took it on board as well because he could have come up against some um, people that weren't really interested or didn't want to follow through with it that or were even against it. But they've done really well to get doctors and nurses on board and all pulling in the same direction. And that's really important that they're all, you know, as you said, singing from the same song page, you know, that they're all, you know, on board and, and doing that. So it's a real testament that how he has created the vision in the practice and that they have a whole of practice approach to managing these, you know, metabolic syndrome, lifestyle um, issues. So it's a real credit and a testament to, to his vision. And the other recurring theme, I suppose, we've been noticing in our interviewees is who was their one? Yeah. Um, who was their one that, that inspired? And it was interesting that his, you know, it was his brother this time and giving the, the book, um, which was the Born to Run yep. uh, book, which, um, which we'll have in the show notes. We'll have a link, um, in the show notes to, to the book. So, um, yeah. That's a that's another reoccurring theme about who's your one. Yes. That'll be one of our, our questions. Yeah. I think that's definitely going to feature highly. And it was really interesting that in recognising the limitations to the NHS, how Dr. Michael is wanting to really focus on being able to offer that extended range of testing and care. And, it's again, it's a real testament to his... I suppose his professionalism and his his practice that he's in developing the body mapping clinic range of services that he's able to use that as a perhaps a adjunct to the NHS services. So in recognising the limitations to what he can do in his general practice, but really wanting to support his patients and his care. Yeah. And, you know, he, he does a whole range of, as well as that test that he spoke about, he does a whole range of other testing. So if somebody is looking for something specific to test, then they can contact him and find out more. So all of the resources that Dr. Michael mentioned, and he mentioned about Tommy Wood's Nourish, Thrive and Balance and the Heads Up Health and the Aura Ring, all those sort of his tech gadget data collecting um, repositories and spreadsheets and things like that. So, um, yeah, they they'll be on the show notes. The aura ring is still on my wish list. <laughs> I can imagine you would you would actually get a lot out of that particular um, that techie tool. Yeah. So, Jackie, talking of the show notes, where can our listeners find the show notes for this episode? So they can find it at www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero two seven it would be great if you could support us through patreon go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish can you recommend a guest we can interview if you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. 
or follow us on Instagram, fabulouslyketo1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.